Well, my father was a, a scholar of um, labor unions and, and the history of the American labor movement, and he wrote scholarly texts. And I always saw him writing, 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 writing. And my mom read to me. I, I can literally picture her right now reciting to me, halfway down the stair is a stair where I sit. There isn't any other stair quite like it. It isn't at the bottom and it isn't at the top, but this is the stair where I always stop. And she would just, out of the blue, just recite a poem like that. And so she instilled in me this kind of love of cleverness and rhyme and the way words sound and narrative. So for me, literacy, writing, reading, were just a part of the fabric of my childhood. And I just took it with me into adulthood. As a professor right now, it's a bit disheartening. Um, I feel like social media and the technology that we live with in our day-to-day -day lives is threatening literacy. And um, going to the library when I was little built me as a human. Reading built me. Um, writing built me. So when I see people just online and texting and abbreviating language down to its sparsest, barest, most minimal form and not reading anymore, I get concerned. Whatever's going on in your life, whether you're in a bad patch or you're struggling with something or having an emotional crisis or you're just tired, you always know you can go back to your book. They're waiting for you with that story. And you can leave that other stuff that's bothering you out. It's like, put it to the side on a shelf, there's your book. Welcome to episode 96 of American Real, where this week we bring you Elizabeth Cohen, professor, literacy advocate, author, and poet. This conversation was extra special as Elizabeth has a poetic way of speaking that's just like reading a really good book. We didn't talk about this in our interview, but Elizabeth and I first met when she wrote an article about my daughter and a condition she faced as an infant overcoming a hemangioma that was located on her face. Elizabeth's writing talent has brought forth many works, including The House on Beartown Road, a memoir of living and forgetting, as well as her book of poems, The Patron Saint of Cauliflower. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my friend, Elizabeth Cohen.
This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Elizabeth Cohen, Associate Professor from SUNY Plattsburgh. You're also a writer, an author of eight books, a poet. You really care about our environment. Uh, Elizabeth, we're longtime friends. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Roger. <laughs> it's great. It worked out great. I know you're in town to do a, a reading, and you said that went uh, really well today. Yeah. Let's start off by talking about your your, new, your latest book. Okay. Um, well, <clears throat> I started off writing as a memoirist, and um, I wrote a, a story of my father, caring for my father who had Alzheimer's disease, and everybody said, it's so lyric, it's so poetic, and that was funny to me because I'd been writing poetry for years before I wrote my book about my dad, and um, then I just sort of said, you know, I'm going to really focus on what I love, which is the language itself like the sort of pared back essential truth of language, which for me is poetry. So I started pouring myself into writing poems daily um, as a habit on the backs of napkins, you know, wherever I am, driving, pull over to write a poem, anything that occurs to me. And, um, you know, I did write one book of short stories, which also people say they're so lyric, they're so language-centric, and I think all of my writing is based on the beauty of language itself. And so that's what I really care about, and that's what my new book really focuses in on. Um, I'm a narrative poet, so my poems tell stories. And um, my new book of poems is all about food and my mother, who was a gourmet cook. And that's this latest book Yeah, here. that's the patron saint of cauliflower. And as you can see, it has this woman um, sort of reclining with this giant rabbit and there's sort of a story behind that. I was in Santa Fe, and I went into a gallery, and there was work by this artist, um, Alexandra Eldridge. And I loved her paintings. This was a, a tarot card, um, the Empress card. So I just looked her up and called her and said, could I use your, your image on the front of my book? And she said, I've done like seven other poetry books. So that put me into a stable with these other writers in her like personal you know website and gallery and they're really good writers too so that was just an interesting like turn of events but the poems themselves are literally about all every poem in it is about food can you read one to us i'd love to thank Great. you so um i will start by reading a poem called goulash hmm. and a lot of my poetry also is about parenting being a mother and being a daughter so this book, I am a mother and I'm a daughter, so the, the lineage of, of maternity is sort of central to the book as well. Goulash. I'm preparing for the end of the world again, which is to say I'm making goulash, which is to say I'm mixing up everything left over from the week and slapping it with a fancy Hungarian name, which is to say I'm tired. I'm planning to feed my daughter and her three or maybe four friends this concoction because I've convinced myself it's better than peanut butter toast, which is to say I'm cleaning out the refrigerator again, which is to say I like to see them eat. I add in a few wands of asparagus, the last of the noodles, and cheese, always cheese, because everyone knows children love cheese, and I love children eating cheese, their small mouths opening and closing over and over so predictably, the way that every day becomes a night eventually. I think of the insides of them, making sense of beets and pasta, of chicken strands and slips of onion, the way each one of them will make sense someday of snow-caked walkways, of books left out in rain, 
and heartbreak, which is to say I like the way they chew. Someday they will encounter bullies. They will feed their own parents' soup and possibly hold someone's hand as they die. They will have many paper cuts, which is to say they will bleed. But for today, they will eat my goulash, which is what I call this stir-fried everything. I like to think I'm feeding them a few ways to prepare for the end of the world here, which is necessary these days, which I have to say makes me tired somehow, which is to say I know too well they will need more than all their beauty to get by. Wow. I love it. Thank you. So you can see, you know, um, it's about being a mother and feeding your child and having been a daughter and fed by my mother, who was a gourmet cook. And also this other theme about um, the state of the world and being concerned for your children. Because I don't think there's a parent in America right now who doesn't think, what is the future for my children? Um, with the economy, with um, environment, climate change, jobs, um, violence, you know, so sort of about trying to feed a beautiful world into your children. Wow. So can we talk about the architecture behind writing a poem, mm -hmm. a single poem, let alone a book of poems? So do you mind sharing some of your insights? How do you, how do you write something like this? So for me, a poem starts with the seed of an idea. And ideas, as you know, are precious things. And they come to you at sometimes inconvenient times. It might be when you're driving or when you first wake up or when you're on the phone with someone. And the thing about poetry is that you literally have to honor that moment when the idea comes to you. Because we all know you say, oh, that's such a great dream. I'll surely remember it later. And of course, the ideas don't stay with you. You know, they're fleeting things that pass right through you. Your brain is porous that way. So for me, when that seed comes, I honor it. Always have a piece of paper or I type it into my phone on the notes. And um, then I have the idea and it's there. So then I go back to it and I look at the idea. And the idea of this poem, of, of, um, of the poem Goulash, was the idea of um, preserving your children through the act of feeding them. And, and, and making them safe. So the next thing I do is think about what will be my trope to carry the poem forward. And usually there's like a methodology to each poem. It has its own internal logic and, and um, map. So for that poem, I used the words, um, Which? I like to see them eat. Okay. Um, I repeat in this poem this idea um, which is to say. Which is to say. And that sort of ties together every idea in the poem. It's like a common thing you hear people say, but I use it, I sort of steal it from language to engine my poem forward. I love it. Thank wow. You. Do you remember where you were when you wrote that poem or when the thought I know came? that I was sitting in my house kind of stirring up a pan of just weird random foods and um, thinking, this will be good for them. You know, will it taste good? Will they like it? I don't know, but like, I'll add in this and I'll add in that. And it's just sort of cleaning out the refrigerator because you don't want to waste food. And then this idea came to me about all this stuff I was sticking in this food and how important it is to me to try to fortify children, you know, in my life to be, you know, healthy for their adulthood. Love it. And I can't help but think about the creation of content. And, you know, you said it all starts with an idea. Right, but then you create, you created this poem that will now live. How does that make you feel? 
This particular poem is really important to me because every time I read it, everybody, it resonates with mothers, especially in parents, and, and um, just the idea of um, recycling the food that you would throw away and making a new dish. And I have to say that for me, this book and that poem, um, I find that it's about the act of cooking, which is making something, and a poem is also making something. So the poem is kind of feeding off, if you will, the act of cooking, which is also about feeding. So they sort of have an interesting connection. Yeah, I love it. So let's talk more about writing in general. When did this start for you? Take us back to mm-hmm. young days of Elizabeth growing up. Yeah. Where, did, where did all this come from? It came from my mother. So my father and my mother were both writer people. My father was a, a scholar of um, labor unions and, and the history of the American labor movement, and he wrote scholarly texts. And I always saw him writing, 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 writing. And my mom read to me. So, and she also recited poetry to me, Emily Dickinson, and she recited um, you know, things from A.A. A. Milne. Uh, I, I can literally picture her right now reciting to me, halfway down the stair is a stair where I sit. There isn't any other stair quite like it. It isn't at the bottom and it isn't at the top, but this is the stair where I always stop. And she would just, out of the blue, just recite a poem like that. And so she instilled in me this kind of love of cleverness and rhyme and the way words sound and narrative. So that just stuck with me. And I believe I was in the seventh grade when I wrote a novel. And um, I illustrated it, and I don't have it, but um, my dad was so excited, and I wrote this novel, and I wrote it by hand um, with a, a pen that you have to dip in ink, you know. I was really embracing <laughs> the whole idea of, like, writing in sort of a medieval sense. And, um, and it was about a little boy who stole the moon. And, and this caused all kinds of havoc on the earth. And... Um, you know, he had to kind of be bargained with to give the moon back by the nations of the world. And, and it somehow involved a dragon, which I, I don't really <laughs> remember what that had to do with it exactly. A flying dragon was involved. But that was my first sort of foray into writing. And then I just remember writing poems and, and little pieces of things and just little tiny mini essays and always in, with that pen and ink thing. And the, I have books and books and books of these little writing experiments I had and, um, and reading was really important for me as a child. My best childhood memories are being taken to the public library by my mother, and she'd go to the adult section, and I'd go to the children's section, and I'd come back with like all these big you know, picture books, and we'd check them out. I had my own library card, and then we'd go home and we'd read. So for me, literacy, writing, reading were just a part of the fabric of my childhood, and I just took it with me into adulthood. So I remember as a teenager when you go through those kind of rough patches and you don't know who you are and you're having angst and what does it all mean, I would write and I would read my way through these periods and patches. And then when I got to college, it was just so clear to me, like I'm a writer person and I identified immediately with other writers on campus and became the editor of my college literary magazine and wrote for my college paper and just always, it was always, I was not a person that came late to writing. It was with me always. And when I lived in New York City, after college, I was working as a waitress, kind of having a, I don't know who I am or what I do, period. And I would go to a lot of art openings, at galleries, 
And I met this one woman, and she said, well, what kind of art do you do? And I said, I'm a writer. And I just showed her a little bit of it. And she said, you should apply to Columbia. And I said, really? And she said, yes, you should just send your poems and apply to Columbia. And I said, I don't know about that. I'm from Albuquerque, and I didn't feel good enough to apply or be a student there. But I got in. And that changed my life completely because in the School of the Arts writing program, everyone was a very serious writer, and I had amazing professors. And at that, from that point on, I would just go to readings and participate in the literary scene at the 92nd Street Y and just go everywhere to hear poetry and, and writers and uh, start to really believe that I was, I was going to be my life path. Wow. Yeah. And I, I hear this often where, you know, those moments happen in life where if you didn't listen, if you Meet weren't her. there at that moment. I know. And then that, that you just said it changed the course of your life. It really did. So do you believe in coincidences or did, was that meant to happen for oh, you? Oh, that's the big question, isn't it, Roger? Um, yeah, there's these crucible moments in all our lives where we just happen to be somewhere at the same time as someone else or at the same time something's happening and it captures you and your life turns and you have a detour towards something new. And, I mean, I believe that the things I was doing, going to all these art openings, being interested in art, brought me to her. And whatever she was doing in her life, which she was, her name was Patty Oleon, I remember well, she did these big hyper-realist paintings huge and whatever her life course was brought her to that moment when I was there and it was a kindness really for her just to say that to me she was just being nice to a much younger woman and I was just being interested in a much older creative woman and I guess it was just like a little spark at that moment I call it bump spark when that happens it's like two people meet and like yeah I love Shazam, that. you know but you had to take action as well you couldn't I just did. say yeah that's a great idea I would love to go to Columbia and don't do anything about it I you took did. action. I did. It took me a while. Didn't do it right away. Probably about three months later, I just looked at what was the application and went up there, walked around. It's very beautiful and stately and serious place. You know, the library's amazing. And I love libraries, as I told you. So I just felt like I could belong here. So I applied. And I did get a scholarship to go there. Phenomenal. And it was life-changing. Um, the people that I went the year that I went, which was 88, was a very big year. Um, I had Sharon Olds as a professor. I had quite amazing professors. Uh, Sandy McClatchy, who just recently passed away. Um, Paul Oster. You know, I had amazing, amazing, amazing professors. Uh, Quincy Troop was one of my um, advisors, Daniel Halpern. And these were all people in publishing, writers who were, you know, in the height of their careers. Anna, Al, um, Alice Quinn, who was the poetry editor of The New Yorker, was one of my professors. And the people in my class, every single one of them, every single one of them had published a book in the next five years. And they were all, like, very successful. Um, I was a little bit slow, you know, following through, but um, I did leave my program and went to work for The New York Times. So, you know, that also was another step towards becoming a writer. And what did you do there? I was a research assistant and what they call a news clerk. And I worked for a very famous writer named Anna Quinlan, and she was an editorial columnist there at the time. And while I was working for her, she won the Pulitzer Prize. And I remember very well, I just took it very seriously in my job. I'm her assistant, and she would just call me up in the morning and say, 
I need to know, you know, what is the average lifespan of, a, of an elephant or something, you know, and I'd right. find out what she needed to know or she'd send me somewhere in Manhattan to dig something up. And, and then I think I'd been there two years when she said, you know, you could be writing for the paper while you're here. You could write for the different desks. And I said, I could? Like, I never knew that was possible. And she was like, sure, like, just pitch article ideas. So I started pitching article ideas. And I, I, I remember first I was like, oh, no, oh, no. I'm a poet. I couldn't do this journalism stuff. And she said, don't be silly. So um, I started writing for different desks of the paper. And one of the articles I wrote was about the first Navajo woman surgeon. And two days after that article ran in the paper, an editor called me from Bantam and said, would you like to write a book about this woman? Wow. And that was kind of the launching of my book career. And so I moved to New Mexico. And lived out there and uh, and wrote a book my first book incredible yeah I wrote it with her not we we decided to partner on the book so it was written by by myself and her and that was a conscious decision because she said there's so many books by white people about native people no one wants another how about if we write it together mm. so we wrote it together and that book is still in print and used all around in, in medical schools and anthropology programs and it's had a long like very lively life. That is fantastic. So, yeah. I, I'm just curious about something. When she asked you that question, what was your immediate reaction? Did you know right away? Did you say yes, or did you have to think about it? About writing for the paper? No, about this woman partnering with you. Oh, I thought she was really smart. I thought, that makes perfect sense to me, because I felt a little funny writing about, like, here's another, you know, Jewish woman mm -hmm. from a middle-class family writing about a woman who came from poverty, and it just felt predatory in a way. And I had majored in anthropology in college, and when I went to try being an anthropologist, I felt the same way. Like, I went to Panama, and I was supposed to interview people, and I felt like, here's the rich white woman coming to talk to the native people. It just felt unbalanced and bad, and I didn't end up wanting to be an anthropologist at all. So when she said, let's partner, I just thought, that's perfect. That's great, because I don't so, think everyone would do that. And that you know, I think not. ego would get in the way, and I commend you for that. It was a smart decision. Because now, oh, and it was a very good decision for her as well, because she was my co-author, and that book launched a career for her as well. She became um, a dean, and then, like, I think something, a very high, you know, a, she had a high position at Dartmouth College, which has a very active Native American program, and she went on to win all kinds of awards. She just won an honorary degree from Stanford. And they, it's like, really, a lot of what happened to her is based on that book. It was her life story. That must make you feel good. I feel so proud for yeah. her. Yeah, I really do. So you mentioned um, you're an advocate for literacy. Yes. Why is that so important? As a professor right now, it's a bit disheartening. Um, I feel like social media and the technology that we live with in our day-to-day -day lives is threatening literacy. And um, going to the library when I was little built me as a human reading built me, um, writing built me. So when I see people just online and texting and abbreviating language down to its sparsest, barest, most minimal form and not reading anymore, I get concerned. And my own students, they struggle to read. Some of them don't really know how to read. They know how to read in theory, but they don't read books. 
They don't go to libraries. And I assign books for my classes, and I find out often that the students have never even bought them. They're just trying to sort of trickle through the classes, guessing, you know, and just, or they'll read online about the book. And um, I found out a long time ago that most people, a lot of people will tell you about a book as if they'd read it, but they really just read about it. Mm. And so they call that bull crit. You know, it's like the faking that you read a book. That's really rampant right now. And literacy is on the decline. So I see literacy as the key to being a civilized society, to being um, educated, and also just to humanity. You know, so much of what's good about people is what we've written and how we've recorded things. And I see that on the wane. Sad. It is sad. And, and at the same time, I can say I just came back from a conference in Portland, the Associated Writing Programs con um, Conference. There was 14,000 poets there. So it's not like right. nobody's writing. Right, right. But, but you're saying on a, on a, on a large scale. Globally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I really believe this, too. I mean, do you read? Yes. You read all the time, right? Every day. Are you always reading a book? Yes. So whatever's going on in your life, whether you're in a bad patch or you're struggling with something or having an emotional crisis or you're just tired, reading, you always know you can go back to your book. Yes. It's there waiting for you with yes. that story. And you can leave that other stuff that's bothering you out. It's like put it to the side on a shelf. There's your book. And it's just a comfort to know that like that story is still there. You can get back into it. And it's different from Netflix. Not the same thing. Totally. It's engaging in a different way and it engages a different part of your brain. So neurologists have studied it, and there's a lot of evidence that shows that reading is actually good for mental health, and it exercises your brain in an important way and keeps neural pathways open, and it's just healthy to read. Yeah. So I just feel like people should read. I agree. It's interesting because just this morning, um, I came across a post from Tom Bilyeu, who I follow on Instagram, and it was about the importance of reading. And, and, and basically what it said is what you just said, is that when you read, it opens creativity. If you're not reading, then how could you think about things that are new? If you stop reading, you're going to go back to old ways and, and, and have a hard time thinking about new things. So he was enforcing, um, you know, being an advocate for reading. I took that and I reposted it because that's, because it, it's important to me too and I wouldn't have thought about it if we didn't talk about it today but n now that you mention it it is important to me and I, and I think it is important to a lot of people but it's great to bring the awareness out there because it's so important it's um, you know and I have teenage kids so I I know and and trying to get them to read is tough Roger there's nothing more beautiful to me honestly in this world than seeing a teenager reading a book. And if I go on the subway in New York City and I just see a kid with a big novel, you know, even if it's Harry Potter, I don't care. It's like that kid reading, it just warms my heart. It really does something for me. And just seeing people reading in general is just a beautiful sight to me. Yeah. I love it. And I think there's a book of photographs somebody once did called On Reading. It was a French photographer, I think. And it's just all these pictures through Paris of people sitting reading books in various situations. Love that. And I just love that book. And for me, it's the same thing. Um, a person in a book is a beautiful thing. You know, you know they're like in that world. Yes. It was been created by another writer. And I just think that's really the coolest. Yeah. So you wrote eight books. 
I have written you wrote, books. You wrote a memoir. I did. Can you tell us a little bit about? Yes. The, the, the so I call that the accidental memoir. I was um, taking care of my father on my farm in Harpersville, New York. He had Alzheimer's disease, and I had a little baby. And um, it was very challenging. It was winter. We lived alone. I, had, I lived in a house that heated with wood mainly and oil, but mostly wood. I had to chop wood. I had to feed two generations. And um, what was happening in my house was very extraordinary. My father was losing his mental acuity, and my daughter was gaining hers at the, at the exact same moment. And what happened was they crossed over. So at a certain point, my daughter didn't need diapers anymore, and my father went into Depends, and my daughter could feed herself, and my father had to be fed. My daughter could spell and write her name. My dad forgot his name. One day, he forgot his name. And he asked me, you know, what is that thing that, that you call me, you know? And so that moment was when I realized that in my house, all the stages of the human mind were, were taking place. You know, the, the end stage of the human mind and the beginning, the genesis of the human mind and myself, so neatly placed in the middle. The first line of my book is 0, 40, 80. Those were the ages that we were when my father came to live with me. And um, so... A woman who had been the editor of my first book about the Navajo surgeon, she just happened to be visiting, and she said, I hope you're writing about what's going on in this house. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm writing about it. And she said, well, I'd love to see some of it. And then she left, and I was like, I'm going to write about this. So I just started writing every day about what was happening in my house. And I had an advantage over many memoirists, which is that I didn't have to think back or remember what was happening because... It was happening right then in front of me. And daily I was offered up just a feast of, feast of, of stories. So again, she was, it wasn't a it coincidence. Was the it was a crucible moment. <laughs> That's right. She was there. She said that to me. And, you know, if she hadn't done that, that book wouldn't have happened. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I really do owe her a lot. And she was an amazing editor, too. She was a hands-on editor. It's hard to find those nowadays. She worked with me on the sentence level, on the chapter level, on the whole book level, and we shaped the book. And then, of course, you know, the story had its own arc because my father got worse and my daughter got more and more intelligent. And, um, and then we were having trouble thinking what the end of the book would be. And I said, well, this is just a sad book. Like, what's the hope in this book? There's just nothing here. Like, what are we going to end with his funeral? And she said, the end of the book will come to you. And so I was like, when is it going to come to me? When is it going to come to me? I'm thinking, it's not coming to me. And then one day, my daughter and I, at this point, he was living in a nursing home, went to visit him. And he had never remembered her name ever since he moved with us. He always called her that little guy. And he and I went to see him with my daughter. No, I didn't have my daughter with me that day. And he said, where's Ava? And that was the end of my book. I was like, oh, my God. You know, my father just invented fire. My father just found a cure for cancer. My father's brain just, like, made this magical leap. My father has learned my daughter's name. And that was such an emotional moment for me. And I told my editor, and she said, that's the end of your book. So wow, incredible. It's kind of like about the amazing, magical weirdness of the human brain, like something happened in his brain, you know, going back to neuroplasticity and how, how we don't really understand our brain. Somehow that connection just happened, that bump spark moment, and Where's he Ava? knew her name. Wow. 
Yeah, so that was the second really big book I wrote. And what's the name of that book? It's called, it was called originally The House on Beartown Road, but then in paperback they changed the name to The Family on Beartown Road. Okay, great. My mother read that book and she loved it. Really? Because her, her mother had Alzheimer's. So she says there was a lot that she was able to to. Was she a to. caregiver for her mother? Uh, no, not so much. Um, not not as Physically, you were, yeah. right? Uh, but yes, I mean there all the time. And then when she, when my grandmother went to the nursing home, she was there all the time. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, from a distance she was. And that is a very common American experience now because there are like millions of people now with Alzheimer's disease and it's projected there'll be like 25% more in the next 10 years. Um, it's a scourge and it's, um, you know, it's a disaster that I don't think our society's prepared for. We don't have the nursing home beds, we don't have the resources, we've just not really spent the time and money to figure out what to do with all these, for, to help these families. Yeah. It's so challenging. Yeah. I interviewed um, a young gal who is a, I guess what you would call her a therapist for uh, Alzheimer's uh, patients, where she actually does art therapy with them. And some of the stories that came out of that, uh, just incredible, um, how they create these wonderful paintings, even though they may not know how to, you know, may not know their name. You know, they're, mm -hmm. they're able to... She's because parts of their brains are is to working, right. yeah. She's and music. Music, Music yes. is huge for people with dementia. Um, I, I have come to believe that the last part of the brain to turn off is the part that relates to music. So you'll see people that are in end-stage Alzheimer's disease singing and humming and responding to music, you know, and they, they'll dance and they'll tap their... Someone who's been sitting in a chair drooling for days will come to life when they hear music. Mm. It's just beautiful. And it sort of is more proof that we don't understand the brain. And it, the brain has parts that do different things. And um, it doesn't just shut down when you get Alzheimer's. It's kind of, you know, parts of it get clogged. And there's like um, these plaques that grow on your, they're called amyloid plaques that grow inside your brain. And they don't just stop you from remembering. They stop you from remembering some things some of the time. And music seems to stick around for a really long time. So my dad, at the end of his life, um, he, oh God, I remember very, very late in his, in his disease, he was living at the Oxford Veterans Home, uh, the New York State Veterans Home in Oxford, New York, it's called, I believe. And um, he would stand in front of the mirror in his room and they'd play classical music and he would like conduct it with his hands. Mm -hmm. And one time I was pushing him around in his wheelchair and I was trying to sing the song New York, New York to him because he loved that song. And he said, out of the blue, he said, that's not how it goes. <laughs> and he hadn't really spoken in like months. It was just, he just remembered, you yeah. know, that he remembered that I was singing it wrong. Right, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So you moved to, to write the book um, you write the book with, with it, this yeah. woman. Mm -hmm. Then, then what happens with your career? Well, that book was published by Random House. Wow! And so, it was a really it was the same year as Reading Lolita in Tehran came out, and Random House threw a party for us, and it was in this amazing chamber in the bottom of um, Grand Central Station. Like I didn't even know they had like beautiful like banquet halls, but they do. 
Um, and so there was this beautiful party, and the book was a New York Times notable book of the year. And it was a book that was, it was good for me as a writer, but it was also quite um, satisfyingly to me. It was good for the world because so many people were doing caregiving. And at that time, uh, they felt very alone. Now there's a plethora of books on the market about caregiving and Alzheimer's disease, but at the time there was very little. So I just would get sacks of mail from people. I'm all alone here in Regina, Canada, taking care of my mom, and your book is my Bible. You know, I, I, was, I felt like I was the only one in the world who felt so alone. And, I, you know, it's so sad for me not to be, because they don't often remember who you are as right. a child. Right. And um, so That's I felt hard. like it was like kind of like a gift from my dad. It was his last gift to me, and writing it was like my gift to my daughter, and also my gift to the world, you know, as a writer. So it was important for me. Absolutely. It's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Were you writing for the newspaper at, at that point? Um, no, I no longer, I was working here for the newspaper in Binghamton, New York. Okay. I was a reporter at the Press and Sun Bulletin, and I was um, what they called an enterprise reporter, so that's where you just cover anything, really, and everything. And so um, I was doing journalism by day and memoir writing by night. A lot, writing a lot. Writing a lot. I got carpal tunnel. <laughs> yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So from there, um, you know, I decided at a certain point, as I saw the newspaper industry sort of faltering, that I would try to become an academic like my father. And so I um, started teaching at, you know, the community college level, and I adjuncted a course at Binghamton University, and then I got a full-time job at Western Connecticut State University teaching creative writing. And um, that was just a big move for me. Again, you know, once again, there was a spark. Somebody said, you should go teach at Western Connecticut State University. And that was a huge life-changing thing for me. Hmm. So then I became a professor. And from there, I went to, to a, a tenure-track job at the State University of New York in Plattsburgh, okay. which has sort of been the bulk of my academic career. How does that compare to the life of a journalist? Well, I like to say I had a midlife career change, but really I had like a midlife life change. Um, being a journalist is a very taxing job. You're on deadline. It's, they say it's one of the most stressful jobs after, you know, um, airplane, uh, what do they call the people that plan the flights and stuff? Oh, yes. Air traffic controller. Sure. So, um, when you're on a daily deadline and you have to get a story done in time to go to press and it can't have mistakes, that's stressful. And sometimes I'd have to do one or two stories a day. And so that's really different from being an academic. In an academic, you really don't have that kind of deadline. You're just working with students and helping them become better writers. And you teach a few classes a semester and you have the summer to work on your own stuff. It's just really, like at first I was like thinking, this can't be real. This can't be a job. How is this a job? You know, because it's so fun and the students are inspiring and, and, uh, and I kind of still feel that way. <laughs> it's just a big change. I still do do journalism. Um, I write for, um, as a freelancer. Okay. I've done pieces still for the New York Times occasionally for other magazines, local um, you know, regional magazines. I write for Adirondack Life and um, just various. When I get ideas, oh, I'm a columnist right now for the Peoria Star Journal. 
Really? <laughs> yeah. I just started, I just approached one of the editors there, Dennis Anderson, and I said, I really want to write still. I miss writing. Peoria, Illinois. Illinois? And he no said, kidding. oh, yeah, you can do occasional pieces for us. So I've been doing, you know, a little, because I just feel like sometimes I just want to write about some random topic, and they let me. That's great. Yeah, it's really That's fun. Awesome. It's really fun. I did a piece there about, um, about my mother's death, and I did a piece there. I went to Mexico, and when I came back was during the time when the government uh, freeze was on. And so um, I wrote a piece about being in Houston in the airport at the port of entry when that was happening, and you know it was just like a disaster. And so I got to write about that experience of like what a government shutdown really mm -hmm. means in real terms mm -hmm. for people. And um, you know, I just get to write about. I got to write about those kids that were stuck in the cave, you know, and just anything that really, you know, strikes my fancy. So I still have a little tiny finger in the journalism pool. Good for I you. I do miss journalism. It's a bit addicting, you know. Once you've really done it for a long time, I wrote for the New York Post for a while. That was oh. fun, and uh, for People Magazine. That was fun, you know. That it's just fun being a journalist because you're in the world. You're interacting with the world. Sure. And there's just a sense of like, there's a sense of excitement and also engagement. Just with I could only imagine. And it's pretty fun and scary at the same time. I covered the Smith Barney women's lawsuit. The women of the, the investment banking firm Smith Barney, they, they sued the company back in the 90s for sexual um, misconduct on the job, and they won. And um, I and a colleague of mine, Sammy Chittam, uh, we covered that lawsuit for the New York Post, and the women won. And they said that our coverage in the New York Post had a lot to do with it, that the judge like, had been influenced by what we wrote about what they were going through. Incredible. So you feel when you're a journalist like you really have a little bit of power to make things better for people? Sure. Influence, for sure. Mm -hmm. That's great. I was going to ask you, any... What's maybe one or two of the most memorable stories that you did I ever covered as covered? a journalist? Yeah. Um, well, I covered the flooding here in Binghamton. That was some time ago. It was very severe, and um, that was an exciting story because it was the first time people used social media. So we were getting like people sending us their photographs and and sending us you know stories of what was happening online, and we, so we could incorporate them because we couldn't go as journalists there. What's interesting is I actually posted some photographs. To the, I believe the website. Yeah, that, that was day. A, that was exciting yeah. because for the very first time, a newspaper realized that citizen reporters could like assist them, sure. and that we didn't have to go physically to places that things were happening, and we couldn't. So that was a really exciting uh, story that I covered. Um, I covered a lot of sad stories too. I covered a story where a young DJ, a radio DJ, was intoxicated, and he was went onto the highway. 88 the wrong direction and hit a van in which I think it was a Vietnamese family and I think everybody died I remember or a that. lot of people died and awful. so that was tragic and I got there around the same time a little before the first responders so that was a shocking experience um, you know I covered oh a really fun thing I covered was uh, when I lived in New Mexico and I was working on the book about the Navajo woman surgeon I used to freelance for the New York Times and I covered a story about a B-52 bomber that went down on the Zuni reservation. Now, reservations are, are like little countries inside our country. They have their own laws. They have their own, you know, governments. And so 
they couldn't get any information about the plane. So they sent me there. And it was the most mysterious experience. First of all, no one would tell me where it went down. It was like, we, we can't tell you. We can't tell you where it is. And no one would talk to me. And a lot of people said, we don't know what you're talking about. But everybody knew that this plane had landed on the reservation. And then a child told me. And so we found the place where it went down. It was just like literally a smoking heap of like tiny little pieces of weird stuff. And I guess B-52 bombers are like a guarded military secret. So they were worried that someone would take a piece of the, of the stuff, you know. And I wasn't touching it. But it was just a huge heap of like smoking remains of a plane. And the pilot had died. And I guess that the Zuni people, I, apparently it was right near a war shrine, a war god shrine. So they were like, what does this mean, oh you know? Gosh. And so I got to write a story about silence because I couldn't get the military to tell me anything about it. I couldn't get the Zuni reservation, you know, the tribal members to tell me anything about it. I could get no information about it from anyone. So the story was literally about the lack of information. And that was really challenging. And it ran on the front page of the national section. And I just felt like, how do you write about a story where no one will let you interview right. them? Interesting, but if it got on the front page, it must have been a really it was it was it was story. on the front page because, well, first of all, B fifty two is like worth millions of dollars, and there was a question about why did it crash that was never answered, and um, I think it went on the page because of the way I wrote it because I wrote it about not being able to find anyone to talk about it, right? You know, so that was just interesting, yeah. So that makes me think of something else, um, and that is the care that a writer puts into her work, right, or his work. Um, you really care. As poets, we call it craft. So that's the word we use, and that's what we, that is our name for all of the different ways that we care about writing. Um, it's, a, it's our word for the methodology that we use to write, the kinds of ways that we mine language, the way that language interacts with reality. All those things go into craft. And I do care about craft. And now I teach it, you know. So I work with young students and, you know, to hone their craft as a writer. And every writer's different. Every person has their own very specific sound as a writer. And... You don't want them just to write like their favorite writer or like you or like the best person in the class. You want them to find inside themselves, well, what do you sound like? What do you sound like when you write? Are you funny? Are you serious? Do you use metaphors? Do you, um, you, know, do you use dialogue? These are all things that I teach now, and, and, I, and it's made me even think about them more. You know, So, yeah, I do. I care a lot about it. Elizabeth, as you know, I love to write, um, and I have uh, I've been working on a novel for quite some time. That you a actually, very exciting novel. <laughs> yes, yes, you actually um, played a, a large role in in the editing process for me. Um, but I feel everyone has a book in them, and that's something I'm very passionate about: is just making people aware that they have a book in them. And not that I'm a master that I could help get it out of them, but I feel an obligation to bring it to their attention. So I've actually been 
trying something for the past couple of months, and that is encouraging as many people as I can to write a book. And I have to tell you, it's working. I have right now seven people that are writing their first book because I introduce it to them. That idea. The idea. Now again, I can't, I'm not taking any of the credit. I'm just saying, I think it's, it's, it's a really... Maybe you're that Crucible Spark person <laughs> for them. Well, that's what I want. And, and I want to do this on a big scale. And I want to, you know, as part of our academy that we're starting with American Real, that's one of the big things I want to do is, is give people the tools to write their own book. Now, they're going to have to do the work, obviously. But we could at least get them started. Yeah. And I would just love to know what you think about that and if and if it's something that you do or that you've seen and is is it is it something normal that I get excited when other people make a commitment to write a to write a book. So Roger, I think it's very exciting and I think it's beautiful thing that you're doing for other people. It is um, an altruistic act and I would back it up a little bit and before saying I think everyone has a book in them, I would say everyone has a writer in them. Okay. So what is that writer going to do? Because every time you speak, every time you form an idea, every time that you say something, you are in essence writing. That is a creative act. Even speaking is a creative <laughs> act. It's so funny you say that because the first thing I tell people is they say, I don't know how to write. I'm not a writer. And, and here's what I say. The untrained me says, you could talk, can't you? And they say, yes, I could talk. Well, beautiful. Then you could write. Yeah, it's really literally just writing down, you know, yeah. and that's your voice, right. the way you speak. That's you that's creating those sentences. So you ask me, like, do I think that's exciting? And I think that's, for me, the most exciting thing. And about... Maybe seven years ago, I started doing that as well. So I had um, this woman asked me if I would help her with her book, as you did. And it was about this little eco lodge that she started in Vieques, Puerto Rico. And she said, I don't really have any money, though. And I said, oh, you know, <laughs> okay, I'll take a look at it. And she said, but I'll barter with you. I will give you my in for a week in exchange for six months of help on my book. I said, well, what would I do with a whole inn? And she said, well, invite writers. So I started calling people that had, I knew were working on books or wanted to write, work on books, and I said, I have an inn in Vieques, Puerto Rico for a week. Do you want to come work on your writing? And that was the genesis for me of a secondary career as a book coach that has really bloomed. I found out that I have an aptitude for it. And um, I've worked with many, many writers now and seen quite a number of books to fruition. And so exciting for me was that one of the first writers that came to that first retreat in Vieques, Puerto Rico, um, his book is now coming out. And it just got this great Kirkus Rave review. Augustin Burroughs, who wrote Running with Scissors, blurbed the back. And he's going to go on to all these radio talk shows. And it's just the most beautiful book. It's wow. called The Lie. And his name is William Dameron. And he came to me with just an idea, you know. And I said, that is the most important story. And so I feel like I believe what you're doing is real and valuable. And that you, when you do that for people, could be that bump spark moment for each one of them to find the writer inside of them. And there's really no 
gift I can think of better than putting someone in touch with their creative, you know, abilities. Yeah, I love that. Oh, great. You just validated that for me, so thank you. You're that welcome. means a lot. No, I think it's beautiful <laughs> that you're doing that. Great. And for me, it's very gratifying to see people um, bloom into the writers that they can be and help them through the sticky spots, you know, and the moments of doubt and all that kind of stuff, you know, so... Yeah, I don't do it in Vieques. So Vieques got hit by Hurricane Maria, and that, that eco-lodge is no longer standing. Oh. Uh, that woman that I worked with now finished her book about that experience of running an eco-lodge, and it's coming out. It's a graphic memoir, which means it's drawn like a comic book, sort of. No kidding. Done sort of as a collage, in a collage method. And, um, yeah, so many of those people that started there are, like, completing their books now. That's so exciting. Yeah, I've worked with rock stars, you know, like that are writing the story of their bands. I've worked with caregivers. I've worked with people who have illnesses that are writing illness um, narratives. I've worked with people that are writing stories about such a plethora of different topics. And it's kind of fun, you yes. know, just to see all the things they're doing. I really enjoy it. And you seem to make the time. But I also notice with you, if you're busy, you're not afraid to, to let people know. You have... You can't overcommit. Boundaries. So that's the thing about being a writer is that you have to, I learned that from other writers. I just saw, you know, if you want to write, you have to have good boundaries. And you have to be able to say to people, I can't. I can't do that right now. Because the most important thing is to honor your own writer self. Otherwise, what are you even passing on? You know, you, you, just, you just sort of belong to a million people. You're just fragmented. And you're just, you can easily become very overworked in this field so I'm very careful to parcel out my time um, responsibly and uh, being a full-time professor you know it has to work it in around my courses and so it is tough but um, I only take on now people that I feel really can finish their books so I have two new clients this spring and one is a food writer uh, I'm not a food writer what am I saying she's a, a producer of reality TV shows about food. Like she worked for Emerald and okay. stuff like that. So she's writing a very funny, beautiful book about all the Thanksgivings of her life. She came from a big, funny Jewish family. And then the other woman is a woman who's from, she's from India, and her mother was sort of like a mail-order bride. And she lives in Ohio, and she's an engineer. She, she's an, an automobile engineer. And her story is about her mother and how her mother believed in her and like helped her to become such a huge success as a woman in a very you know male-oriented field. So those are two books I'm working on. Exciting. With, yeah, it's really, it's really beautiful because <laughs> they're coming together. That's great. So, One question I have, you talked about honoring really yourself and, and your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to writing, what happens if you're writing multiple things? Do, have you mm -hmm. had that situation? Mm -hmm. How do you how do you focus mm -hmm. on, or how do you toggle really between one and the other? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a really important question. So I'm um, kind of a multi-platform writer. I'm a multi-genre writer. I write short fiction, and I'm a journalist, and I write memoir, and I'm a poet. So what I have, for me, I have like my mainstay project. So for example, right now I'm working on a memoir, and um, I make myself write very early in the morning every day, and for like a couple hours. Even if I've got nothing in my, I, I feel like you wake up from the dream state very 
you know, your brain is just like bubbling with all sorts of ideas and and connected feelings. So I use that energy to work on my memoir. But poems come to me when they come, you know. So I always stop what I'm doing, write down the idea, and then I work on them usually later that day or within a few days. So I can toggle poetry and my memoir pretty easily. Journalism is usually on an assignment basis or with my Peoria, you know, journal, you know, um, position. Uh, I hear something on the news or somebody says something to me and I think that's really, like, that's a column, you know. So I don't have a problem toggling different kinds of writing. But if I was writing a novel right now, I did write a novel about a year and a half ago. I had a sabbatical and I went to Sag Harbor and I turned off all media. I unplugged my phone for like three and a half months and I only worked on that. And it was the most concerted writing I've ever done besides my memoir that I wrote about my dad. I didn't work on anything else during that time. Um, But here's the beautiful thing. So when you write a book, there's going to be stuff that the editors cut out. It's just going to happen. So when I wrote my book about my father, there was a lot that, that was removed. And because I write poetically, no matter what you know, genre I'm writing in, I call them literary outtakes. And so the, I wrote a book of poems called The Economist's Daughter that came from the literary outtakes from you know, the family on Beartown Road. And um, I guess you could say that this book, The Patron Saint of Cauliflower, is kind of like literary outtakes of, uh, of a book I'm trying to write about my mom, but like not everything fits in it. And some ideas just seem so crystal and pure that they just became poems, you know? Very neat. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't find a problem with toggling, but if you're really working on a big, important thing to you, and you can do it, like if you have a sabbatical or if you somehow are able to leave your job and, like, find someone to watch your dog or whatever, then, um, you know, I kind of advocate for only working on that thing for that period of time. Great advice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. So would you like to read... Another poem. Hey, another poem. All right. Great. Um, so I, I wrote this other book, Bird Light. I'm a bird watcher and a birder. I love birds. And um, so I happened to live under a migratory path of cranes when I lived in Harpersville. That would always, every year, pass over my house. And um, I just feel like birds. I don't know. Don't you just? They like, carry some. There's something about that mystical. Like, just the fact that they fly and they yes. have the power of individual flight and that they can go so far and their migratory paths and that they are the ones that pollinate our food. Yes. They do so much for us and they're just magical beings really. And they say now that maybe dinosaurs are the actual you know, ancestors of birds. So I'm very interested in birds and I love watching them and they just seem to me like, like almost like living flowers. Like they're just beautiful and hummingbirds. So I wrote this book of poems about birds, and there was one poem that didn't fit in it um, that kind of got carried over to my other book because I just couldn't stop writing about birds. And I love it so much that I will read it to you. It's sort of like my my final bird poem that I wrote, um, although I've started some more now. But (laughs) So this book, this poem is called, so this is a poem that sort of melds together, you know, my studies in anthropology, my interest in um, evolution and where we come from and the connectedness of all beings and also kind of with a magical realist idea of what happens to us after we die. Are we reincarnated? 
and if we're reincarnate, you know, playing with the idea of like maybe once I was a spider, maybe once I was a bird. So this is a poem called When I Was a Bird. I had the smallest bones. I could breaststroke on the smooth back of evening. I had no particular anger. Sometimes I made a meal of rains leftover wheat. I found certain beetles enticing. I loved fish. There was a time when I sang to a smaller bird for days. There was a time when I pierced the skin of a lake and left mud tracks on asphalt. I've let my shadow follow other shadows into the quicksand of night. I've slept among sandflies and fallen down on the miracles of road-killed mice. After, I evolved into a mongoose, the smallest springbok of a large herd, a wildebeest, a talad flying fox. But I never forgot my ancestry of feather and flock. It was my best life of all and my most successful. I was married to air, and my hatchlings followed me everywhere until one day they left to marry the wind themselves and became tree frogs and pink fairy armadillos and little girls in India with parasols. Wow. Incredible. That was a long way, that poem. <laughs> okay. So how come it didn't make the bird? Oh, oh, why didn't it become, why didn't, wasn't it a part of bird life? Yes. This book is a very extraordinary book, if I may just talk a little bit about Please. who does your covers. Because I believe covers are important. And so this cover is done by Aliki Barnstone, who is a poet. She's the poet laureate of, I believe, Missouri, I think. Oh, I hope it's not Minnesota or something. I'm not great with states. But she's um, a remarkable poet, and we were talking once. And I said, God, there's so many poems about birds. And she said, I have so many drawings of birds. And I said, I've been writing poems about birds since I was nine. And she said, I've been drawing birds since I was nine. Let's collaborate. So we did. And they're pen and ink drawings by this woman. And um, they're so beautiful to me. So this is one called Cloud Tree. As you can see, she has a very particular style. Yes. you know. And she did the cover as well. She's also, she does watercolors. And um, this is called Sun Flight. So were her drawings done before your poems? Or so what how, we did, did was work? I sent her my poems, she sent me her drawings, and then we talked like, what do you think matches what? And how do you think we could put this book together? And we sort of really agreed on like, like this is the section of the book called Skylarking. And we both agreed like this little sketch she did of birds on a grid really matched this section. And um, there's a poem in here about peacocks. And she actually had a drawing of a peacock. And so um, this is her drawing, Catch a Peacock. That's incredible. You know? And I have this really hilarious poem about a peacock. So it's how to catch a peacock. And um, so it was fun to collaborate with an artist. And highly recommend it if anybody ever has an opportunity, if any writer ever has a chance to collaborate with an artist. It's just, it's so fun. There's nothing negative about it. And even the man, um, Ron Starbuck is his name. He's from Houston, Texas, who's our editor. Um, he loved this book. And just, it was just really fun to do that. So yeah, so the other poem 
um, I just couldn't find a drawing. <laughs> okay. It just didn't seem to match the other poems. Because it's quite. a wonderful poem. It, was it just didn't really fit. Okay. And it certainly doesn't fit in this book. But like <laughs> Ron was like, we were publishing that poem in this book, so we did, and um, and I'm really glad we did because I love it so much. So yeah. Wow. Um, what's next for Elizabeth? Oh man! Wow. All right. So. Um, in the beginning of our conversation, we talked about um, the environment and my concern about, um, you know, just a plethora of plastics and things we throw away and garbage and our planet. And I really think it's kind of almost the only thing right now to really, I mean, of course we care about our children and our health and whatnot, but, and our cities, but our planet is at risk. And so I've started working on a book of poems that kind of, deals with that on the most micro, 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 micro level. And I call it, um, God, let me think, hold on, no, I forgot what I call it, hold on. Um, oh, I wrote, I invented a word, and the word is apocalyptica. And so I took the word apocalypse, and I sort of turned it into like apocalyptica, like hypothetical or something like that. Right. I just changed it and tweaked it a little. And so in this book, I talk about the, the smallest things on earth. And, and how they're going to survive or not survive. And I mean microorganisms in the ocean, um, cellular plants, um, cellular creatures, things that are one-celled and two-celled, uh, little tiny animals, um, infants, just the very building blocks of life. Because we hear a lot about, like, oh, you know, tornadoes ripped up this town, and we think of climate change on the macro level. Like, what's going to happen to the ocean? What's going to happen to the atmosphere? But climate change and the way that, that we're degrading the earth with our garbage and our, you know, our output is actually threatening the micro world. And so that has sort of become the focus of these poems. They're about the tiniest things and, um, and what is their future and, um, and what are they? You know, just even what are they? You know? So it's been fun for me. It's been a lot of research and a lot of biology and botany and, um, you know, and everyone talks about the macro, so I, I love that. It that right, way, you I know? love that you talk about this and bring, you're bringing to awareness to it. It's like a whole other level yes. of awareness, you know, and also which is equally as important, if not more. It's actually more important because some of Without, these things. Right. Um, I can't remember the name of this one, like little tiny, tiny like creature, but almost everything in the ocean is connected to it, and it is something that has to do with coral reefs, and so the future of the ocean depends on this micro, micro, microorganism, and um, it's just one of those things that people don't really think about, but if this microorganism were to cease living because of the threatening of the, of the reefs and coral reefs, which is where it lives and inhabits, it's going to cause havoc for so many species in the ocean and mankind because we we eat fish too you know so um you know it's like one of those things like i don't know if you ever remember that poem from when you were little like you know because of the horse the battle was lost because of the battle the war was lost and it all starts down from this horseshoe nail like everything kind of builds off of this right. one failure of this tiny little thing and that's what this book is about it's about how everything we know depends upon everything we live, everything we eat, everything we do is connected to a level, to an invisible world that we really don't see, but we depend upon its survival. So wow. that's sort of more or less what I'm talking about in this new book of poems. When do you anticipate that coming out? Um, I'm not really sure. 
Um, I'm sort of playing with the idea of collaborating with my daughter on this book, who um, we talk a lot about, you know, environmental issues and, you know, what is the future. I read an article the other day that said many 20-year-olds now do not intend to ever have children because they feel like, well, why would I have children when there's no earth for them to live on? Or mm. It's so, going to be so hard with climate um, refugees, you know, that are going to implode. And so... Um, she said, well, I want to write a book, too. But my book, I want it to be about the hope, about how it's going to work out and ways we can make it work out. So I thought, well, what if that book was part of this book? And we kind of made it into a dialogue. What if I could make a book with my daughter? And mine is like about my concern for this micro, you know, the, the fragility of the micro world. And hers is it's sort of hope. about the beauty of, yes. like, how things could be okay. You know, so that's what I'm thinking. So it's really a very nascent project. Okay. But um, I'm like exciting. I'm, I'm in the ideational phase, sure. you know. Great, great. Yeah, and then I'm working on a memoir right now, about um, a year and a half of my life, when I had an Egyptian foreign exchange student, a woman from Egypt lived in my house, and um, she's actually from the country of Bahrain, but her family lived in Egypt. Her dad was a um, diplomat from Bahrain to Egypt, and so she lived with me. And she's, you know, Islamic, and I'm Jewish, and we were like. What will, how will this work, and will this be a problem? And over the course of that year, we found out that so many things we have in common, and they're like our, you know, salam alechem is how you say hello, and shalom is how you say, like from the language to, you know, the, the things we would note about our holidays, and fasting for me on Yom Kippur, and her, you know, for Ramadan, and, um, you know, our holidays, and what we believe, and how we believe in a creator, and how we feel, what we feel humans' role is on Earth, we're so similar. And I started to see that the two peoples on this Earth that are seen as in the greatest conflict, here's these two women living together in Plattsburgh, New York, discovering daily, you know, that there's so many similarities. And this all takes place around our co-adoption of a puppy. We found out there was this puppy that was endangered, and we sort of rescued this puppy. And our love for this dog and the joy we got from this dog was, it just united us completely. So it's a love story about humans and dogs and understanding of different cultures. And it's really fun to write. That's great. She's really different from me. And, you know, we didn't always get along and have the same ideas, but, like, the things that we, the common ground we found was so rich and beautiful. And I just felt like this is a gift to the world, you know, how these two women, you know, an Arab and a Jew, kind of found out that they're the same. Really, they're just the same, you know? That's beautiful. Thank you, Roger. Wow. Like, it's very wow. fun writing. That's yeah, great. It's actually very funny, too. She's very, she's very funny. Speaking of funny, let's yes. talk about humor. Let's talk about humor. So if I were to ask you, what is funny? What would you say? What makes things funny? What's funny to me? Yeah, what makes something funny? It's very mysterious, right? It it's is. Very, right. It's like, it's like, trying to think. Okay. It's like, how do you define funny? It's just one of those things that, like, it's different for every person. It's like, I know it when I see it. I know it when I hear it. A good comic is funny, you know, but in their own stylistic way. Um, so I talk to my students a lot about that because I feel like humor is a really important part of literature. And um, it's an important part of of sewing together any narrative 
You can't, if you've been a public speaker ever in your life, you know you just can't tell people ideas. You have to be funny, like every 2.5 minutes, right. or you've lost your audience. Right. So humor, even in the saddest books, my book about my father, you know, about a man losing his mind is peppered with humor and funny things he'd say and do about like getting woken up in the middle of the night and finding my daughter and my father watching Elmo's World and singing, you know, just like these crazy moments. Right. And they were so hilarious and things he, the things that would come out of his mouth, you know, because they, you know, they have word salad. They put language together in funny ways. And so I would just mine those moments. And I'm not making fun of him or laughing at him, but just finding in this sure. tragedy what's funny. So um, I use a lot of humor. And I try to teach my students to be funny. I'm not sure you can teach people to be funny. Funny is kind of like you have it or you don't. You know, right. um, yeah. Like I was, I okay. So funny moment yesterday. Um, my I was over at my friend's house. And we were talking about takeout food, and and I was, and my friend said, um, "Well, what kind of food should we get? Should we get Indian? Should we get Thai? Like, what should we get?" And I was like, "I don't know. I kind of feel like eating. You know, it's going to be Passover. I'd like eat, like to eat some Jewish food." And she said, "Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, uh, let's go Jewish tonight." <laughs> and she was like, "Let's have some matzah." And like we just started laughing about like how Jewish food just like you don't go out for Jewish. You don't have it delivered. Like most of the time, you don't think of Jewish food as like. Right. Mm, let's get a pizza. Mm, let's get, you know, some matzo ball soup. So it was funny. And, like, what made it funny? That's the mystery. Why is it funny? It's Why is it so silly? So that's a question for the ages. But um, I try to incorporate humor in my poetry. And if you want, I can read you a poem. Please. I think it's kind Please. of funny. Let's so go. in all my books of poems, I have, like, a lot of poets say, oh, you know, that's Elizabeth Cohen. She's funny. Because I can write about tragedies um, and I can write about, you know, things like, you know, um, you know, my poem about, you know, feeding my daughter, you know, in goulash and just leftovers. But I also can, like, find the funny moments about food. So I had a lot of poems in here where, that I thought were just making fun of food. And um, one is this one. It's not ha-ha funny, but it's, like, amusing, I guess. Now it's not going to be funny when I read it, but I think oh, it's I'm kind sure of it funny. Is. All right. So, if you're at a poetry reading, do you go in there thinking? What do you go in there thinking you're going to hear? Like, do you think, oh, this is going to be so heavy? Right. Right. I mean, yeah. Okay. So dry. So imagine then that the poet reads this poem. Okay. The Cinnabon. All hail the Cinnabon, stewing in its juices of fructose and butter substitute large and multifaceted. It can be smelled throughout the mall, which along with the airport is its chosen habitat. We line up for it all the way to American Eagle, and some days past the candle shop and nail place, everyone's so excited to pay for this carbohydrate bomb. All hail the Cinnabon, spelled so cutely to evoke the primal spice, and what? Bonton, Bonami, Bonjour, Bon Vivant, it's a name so full of happiness. You can buy them by the six-pack in their own special box. I bought one once and brought it to an office party in Vestal, New York, where the beleaguered troops of the newspaper industry gathered to finger-bathe in dextrose, enjoy something they would never purchase but would certainly eat, because why not? Life is short, and a Cinnabon is just that kind of indulgence that reminds you that you are alive in a strange, 
sweet, disturbing way until you realize you have given up to something dark inside you and you can't remember really ever deciding at the outset of your day that you would eat a Cinnabon and lick your fingers so publicly one by one. That's great. It's a silly poem. <laughs> it's great. It's great. But it's like you can't just talk about the end of the world all the time, Yeah, that's right? awesome. <laughs> <laughs> have you read that at poetry readings? I have not. You, you think I should? Please. <laughs> I would love to hear the reaction. It's just not the kind of thing that people think you're going to write a poem <laughs> right. about. You know? But that's the thing about poetry. is like anything is a sure. subject for a poem. You yeah. know? It's not just tragedy or heavy things or... And Shakespeare even was funny, you know, like even the most Marlowe, like some of the poets you don't really realize are, they're very funny, you know, so you just have to kind of be open to it. That's great. Elizabeth, if you were to take out your cell phone right now and call the 20-year-old Elizabeth, what would you tell her? Don't be so serious. Don't worry so much. Don't stress so much. This is your one and only 20th year. Relax. Enjoy it. You're probably not going to look this good forever. <laughs> and have fun and just enjoy your life more. You know? Great. I think most 20-year-olds kind of stress a lot. Yeah. I did. Yeah. Me too. Well, this has been wonderful. I'm so glad we had the opportunity to sit down. You have uh, you've been a friend, you know, over the years, and um, a mentor helping me with my writing, and I thank you for that. And but one last question before I let you go, I ask every guest, mm -hmm. and that is, what do you want your legacy to be? As a human or as a writer? As a human. But you could have whatever you like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I like to think that what I leave behind. We, the best thing that anyone can leave behind. I mean, we all think of, of our children as our legacies, of course, you know. Um, we put so much energy into raising them and hoping that they're well. So there's that. But I like to think that um, I've made people think a little bit in a different way and made them smile a little and given them some moments of happiness in my writing. And um, I like to think also that I've helped some writers, you know, find their voices and write their books and um, be the writer people they can be. Maybe help the world a little bit. Phenomenal. Thank you. Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Thanks, Roger. Welcome to the American Real Family. Uh, thank you <laughs> thank so much. You.